Yeah, you ever get those moments in worship where you feel like you just sort of had a, a prelude to the heavenly throne room? You just got a glimpse for just one minute what that's going to feel like? We're just kind of overcome and overwhelmed by um, the reality of the promises of God. What it would truly be like, unadulterated, without any brokenness or sin left in the world, to stand through no filter of sin and just experience the waves of, of being overwhelmed by the love of God and to be in His presence. What a treat. We get to gather as people in worship. There are places around the world right now that are clamping down hard on freedom and opportunity for the followers of Jesus to do this. These should not be moments that are lost on us. These should be moments that change us. And I hope God meets you in whatever way you stand in need of Him today. We've shared with each other our voices in worship, but now we want to hear from His voice through His Word. Will you join me in prayer? God, thank you for the gift of song and music. Thank you, put, thank you that you put a psalter in the, middle, in the middle of your book. And you taught us how to praise you and you welcomed us into your presence. And that when you introduced worship, you commanded joy. You commanded celebration and feasts. And as we look in this text today, how these feasts came together... Teach us what this means for us now in our experience of you, what you've given us and what you still want for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, what comes to mind? Christmas, there you go. That was an easy one. You always feel like I'm going to set you up for some sort of trick, right? But no, this one, Christmas, there you go. Easter, all right. Creaster, exactly. You would never expect to find Easter eggs in your stocking on Christmas morning. And you wouldn't expect candy canes to get handed out at an Easter service. Sometimes one of the things that we miss in the depth of meaning in a text is our historical distance from it. it a historical distance hides for us the context that creates the meaning at different levels. And I had so much fun this week realizing that in the story of Palm Sunday, of the atriumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, there were like pieces of this that I was like, my goodness, I have preached this text wrong for 20 years. That there are elements inside of this um, that I learned completely new, because there's a, so much is made of in the Gospel of John, how much the feasts play a significant role in what Jesus is doing. And in this key text today, one of the few passages in John that actually occur in all other, all the three synoptic Gospels. So there's actually very few passages, if you read through the Gospel of John, that exist in all four Gospels, but this is one of them. And this is one of those key texts that has all kinds of meaning embedded in it. And I want to show you what I mean by that together today. So just make sure we got the context all set right. Right before this, the Sanhedrin has gathered. Caiaphas's prophecy has been made known that one man is going to come and die for the people of Israel. And right before this, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, which nobody's ever done, and everybody is abuzz over that one. And then right before this text, now Mary has come in and anointed Jesus' feet. And then we get to our text. 
for today. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also just to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Destroy the evidence. The next day, a great crowd gathered that had come for the festival, heard heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The next, oh, I think I jumped here. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. I want to peel apart a couple of significant things in this text that help us unravel some of the meaning, I think, in it. And I'm standing on the shoulders of some amazing commentators who have spent years studying these passages in order to find some of this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, remember the three big Jewish feasts, every good God-fearing Jew from across the world is required to come back to Jerusalem for Josephus, writing later in the same generation that this text would have been written in, records that 2.7 million people for this feast would have showed up in Jerusalem at that time. So the amount of people we're talking here is the kind of amount of people that would make Romans incredibly nervous every time this came around. Because would-be pretender messiahs had come in recent years and stood up and tried to take advantage of the fact that the crowds had swelled and there was a fever pitch and there's this nationalism embedded in these historical moments that recall the grand and glorious lost days of the power of Israel. And so all of that is being evoked in each of these times when the great crowd gathers. And they wave palm branches. And this is the one that I realized they didn't know enough about there was incredible historical significance as to why palm branches. It's not just that they were sitting alongside of the road and it was just the first thing that came to mind. Judas Maccabeus was a priest in Israel nearly 200 years before this. He led what was known as the Maccabean Revolt between 167 and 160 BC against the Seleucid Empire, which at that point in time was set up and, over, and ruling over Israel. They were led by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who had actually outlawed any religious Jewish practice. So the people in Israel were not allowed to go to the temples. He desecrated the temple. He brought his army in. He did everything he could to set up and just moments of disgust for the Jewish people for what was happening inside their sacred temple space. And so the people were longing. They couldn't even go to their places of worship. They couldn't go to the synagogue. They couldn't celebrate their feasts. They couldn't remember their history was illegal to do so. 
And so Judas Maccabeus, this priest, rises up, and it was very common in those days that a priest would also be involved in political things. So he was also a soldier, and he leads this revolt and establishes what becomes known as the Hasmonean dynasty, which reigns until Rome takes over Israel. And it was this moment of incredible pride for the people of Israel, these palm branches, because what had happened was in 164, on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, December 14, 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus brought a procession back in and reestablished and cleansed the temple. And as he came marching in, the people took palm branches and waved them and laid them before and palm branches became this symbol of national identity, of freedom, of a time when our overlords had been kicked out. And it was this sense of, of national pride, one of these national symbols for them. In fact, later on in the same century, you see palm branches minted on their, own, on their coins on the flip side of his head in order to show that this was some significant symbol that represents our independence like a maple leaf on a Canadian flag, or, or like a cedar on the flag for the country of Lebanon. Like that's how embedded this symbol is for these people. And so it's no accident of what they're saying when they lay down palm branches when Jesus is coming in. But the problem is, is that they're conflating their national identity and their desire for freedom with the message that Jesus came to bring. And they can't pull these apart because all the would-be messiahs who came before Jesus established the framework that that's what you do. That it's our religious convictions and our political convictions so mixed together that allow us to call out for this kind of freedom and deliverance. And this is what, would, what led to what became known as zealots. These would-be messiahs would come along and the crowds would follow. And this is a painting of Judas Maccabeus. Look at everybody else in the picture, all kind of almost prostrate before him like he's some sort of messiah figure. In many ways for them, he was. Became the archetype from which Jesus followed. And what he established in 164 B.C. when he cleansed the temple, on that 25th day of Kislev, December 14th, became ever after known to the Jewish people as the celebration of Hanukkah. Now one of the biggest feasts that any, any observant Jew continues to focus on in their religious practices. So, against all of that backdrop, you kind of have this, this significant symbol. So when they pull down palm branches and they incorporate that into this moment of Jesus coming in, a nationalist identity and a religious fervor are mixing. It's almost like the people start chanting USA, USA in the middle of church. Like it would be that kind of confusion going on for them in this moment. The next day, the great crowd that had gathered him to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. And what I want to show you is that there's a progression in the language that they're using to reveal what it is that they believe they are experiencing in this moment. Hosanna literally means save now, give salvation now. And by this point in time in history, it became known sort of as just a general form of praise. But the language begins to escalate. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now, this is a quote, of course, from Psalm 128. It was sung in the Halal, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when every Jew would have come to Jerusalem. They would have known that every single morning the temple choir gathers and they sing this line and they sing it over the, the pilgrims who are all coming in. It's a blessing pronounced over the pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem to experience Yahweh in this place, in the historical moment. And so it's sort of a blessing pronounced over the pilgrims. And for them, this song would have been analogous to the Feast of Tabernacles as joy to the world is to you during the season of Advent or on Christmas Day. Like you don't take joy to the world and sing it randomly in the middle of a church service in July, right? Like you just don't do that. And so you don't sing this line at any other time for them than you would during the Feast of Tabernacles. But it's not the Feast of Tabernacles. They're mixing up their Christmas trees with their Easter eggs. Their traditions and their holidays are clashing in this moment. And the halal is being celebrated and sung when they're supposed to be coming into town, not for the Feast of Tabernacles, but for Passover. And so there's all kinds of this stuff going on. But now, look what, what this is, what D.A. Carson says about what they're doing in this moment when they recite 128. The crowd doesn't merely pronounce a blessing in the name of the Lord on the one approaching, but pronounces a blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, he is the blessing. It's not just another pilgrim coming in, but there's a transition taking place in their understanding of who it is that's arriving. And so then now they break from 128, and they break, and they don't recite from the Psalms anymore, and they come up with their own title, Blessed is the King of Israel. They believe, based on what they've experienced in their history, that what we are about to experience is a coronation moment where Jesus is going to come in and is going to initiate the war that's going to free us from our oppressors, that's going to set us back up to where we want to be in the positions of power. We're going to win again. But Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. He goes a different direction. For them, they're getting all excited, they're getting all ramped up inside of this moment, and the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover and Hanukkah have all come together, like Christmas giving, you know, like the way we would do it if we were to conflate three of our biggest holidays and be completely confused by all of this. This is what's happening in this moment, but Jesus breaks from the framework. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells us how Jesus orchestrated the event so it would be a, a young donkey that he ends up riding it on. And notice, it's not a war horse. Jesus is preaching a sermon in his transportation as he goes into Jerusalem. He's breaking the framework of their minds in terms of what it is that they believed was going to happen. Jesus is pulling from a different part of their own history. He's pulling from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Blessed is the king of Israel, Hosanna. They think it's their king coming in, and Jesus basically answers, yeah, you're right, it is your king coming in, but not the one that you expected. Rather, the one that you need. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but lowly and riding on a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. You see, when they would quote one portion, when a New Testament writer quotes a single verse from the psalm or from the passage in the Old Testament, what they know is that their readers are automatically going to put that passage in context and think about the rest of it. 
So what he's recalling, John's recalling here, isn't just the first verse of Zechariah 9.9, but everything else that follows. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and the river, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. They didn't get what they wanted. They got what they needed. Because Jesus did not come to meet his people's expectations. He came to meet their needs. And the message of Palm Sunday that we need to be able to take out of passages like this is the same message for us today when we come before God in prayer, when we come before God with the petitions for all the things that we're struggling with in life. This was one of their greatest ones, and they came and they thought they knew the answer. They thought they knew the framework. But what Jesus wants to do every single day of your life is blow away your expectations and come with answers that don't match what we want but what we need. And every single time you or I have a preconceived notion of what God is supposed to do to answer and to find victory for us, he does something different. Everybody lined up on that road thought that Jesus was coming to start a war. But he wasn't. He was coming to end all wars. And it would only happen if he did it in a different way than everybody else who had ever come before. He does it so differently that's how Ben Weatherington puts it. Jesus did not ride into town like Clint Eastwood, prepared to kill the bad guys. He rode into town prepared to die for others. In other words, some of our basic American cultural myths about how we should solve the problem of evil and injustice in this world go against the grain of the gospel story of Palm Sunday and the other gospel stories. The Jesus that they want, they don't get. The Jesus that they need, they're afraid to receive. And in the same way today, you and I want a Savior. We know we need a Savior. But dear God, we do not want to have to look like one. And so we keep him at a distance. And we have our expectations about what it would mean to win. But I want to tell you in every single battle that you are having right now in your life with somebody else, every point of difference you feel with somebody, every argumentative dialogue you've engaged along in social media, if you are setting out in any one of those moments to win, you have already lost. Because we are not looking like Jesus when we approach it like that. Jesus came in Palm Sunday and today to blow away our expectations because the goal is not for you to win, the goal is for you to look like him. And those are worlds apart. For the Jewish people and for us. There is no sanction here for nationalistic visions in our own day which limit global obligations or which glorify our national heritage to the exclusion of nations beyond our borders, of whatever color, race, creed, or whom the king has come, died, and risen. The Jewish people thought that God was coming for them. Every one of us, I think, has a selfish desire for God. We really see ourselves different and apart from, and let's be honest, better. More, someone that God would be more interested in than everybody else. They wanted Jesus to come into Jerusalem and throw off the Roman overlords. Jesus came to set a table that would be transformed in the wedding supper of the Lamb, where Romans and Jews were one day going to come together and eat and share a meal at for the rest of eternity. That's what happens in the moment. He comes not to increase our arsenal, but to, for us to be able to lay it down. They don't understand yet what Jesus is doing in this moment. This is so that one day North Koreans, South Koreans will sit at the same table at the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And that Israelis and Palestinians will do the same. And those who claim Jesus on the far left or the far right of the political spectrum will sit at the same table at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus did not come to start a war. He came to end all wars, all disagreements, every point of division that has ever existed between all humanity. No wonder they don't have a framework for this. Nobody's ever done this before. And so at the end of the day, they get the Jesus, not that they expected, but the one that they need. And I wonder, I wonder for myself and for you, when we're coming before God in our own petitions of prayer, when we come back before Palm Sunday, or all the ways that we think we see Jesus, are we seeing him in the Jesus that we want or in the Jesus that we need? Do we already have a definition of our mind of what it means to win when this prayer is answered by God? Or are we coming in a spirit of humility and of brokenness and of a suffering Messiah? who wants to teach us that the way to transform the world is not what our flesh wants. Do we come to win or to die to ourselves? Do we come to change the other or to be transformed by Christ? You see, the seat at the table and to be able to celebrate that meal for all it's intended to be will all depend on our ability to come and fall in line and approach him the way that he approached Jerusalem. Where is your heart in response to that today? And I hope you can walk away from here and have some moment today, maybe it's just in worship and our response, maybe it's later in the day, and ask yourself the question, am I still seeking the Jesus I want or the Jesus I need? And what part of my life does he want to reveal that to me? Because my guess is he wants to surprise you, like he did Jerusalem and all 2.7 million people who are waiting. Will you guys come back up? And uh, we're going to sing a Palm Sunday song, Hosanna. And I dare you to sing it in the way that it was truly intended in this moment when Jesus wanted us to call out Hosanna for the Jesus not that we want, but the one that we need. Fellow believers, one day no national flag will fly but underneath the one of the manner of love. He reigns on high, and he washes our feet. He loves us perfectly and is inviting us to do the same with the world. Make a movement in step with him today. Make a movement of peace. Make a movement of reconciliation. Be a part of his shalom. Go in peace to love and serve our reigning king. Amen.